Well, we're in this Advent series. Uh, Today is number three of four, uh, taken from Isaiah chapter nine. We're gonna read the text that's sort of our launching text. Isaiah nine verses six and seven. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, If you have a Bible or an app, you can follow along. I think it'll be on our screen too. Isaiah nine. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. So in this text, Isaiah has this insight about the identity some features of the identity of this coming Messiah that we know as Jesus Christ. Four distinguishing features or titles, you could call them, that we just read. Jesus won't be born for 800 more years when this word comes to Isaiah. And yet he clearly sees these features in this coming promised Messiah. As a wonderful counselor, God is revealing his wisdom to us, his As mighty God, he reveals his unique power. Nathan dealt dealt with that last week, unpacking the the three omnis of God, his omniscience, which means his all-knowing character, his omnipresence, which means being everywhere at the same time, his omnipotence, which means his all-consuming power. As the Prince of Peace, God, this is my interpretation of that meaning, God reveals his motivations and his purpose. Next week, Nathan will talk about this great attribute of Jesus. So today we're gonna focus on this third attribute, the one called Everlasting Father. In this title, God, I believe, reveals himself in the way he wants to relate to us. God wants to be our Father forever. Isaiah foresaw it. The Old Testament foresaw it. Jesus came and fulfilled it. To make this relationship through Christ, we see this living God, Emmanuel, present with us. He makes this relationship with the eternal Father heartfelt and intimate and real. But before we get into this, We need to take just a little bit of of a moment to talk about how God reveals himself to us. It's not like a smooth track. It comes a little bumpy. It's a little tough sometimes for us. Since the very beginning, God's been reaching out and showing himself and his redemptive purposes to mankind. He made us. He created us with love. He made us good. The first three books, two books, two chapters of Genesis revealed this. And, and even after we fell, turned away in Genesis chapter 3, he still tenaciously pursues us. Early 20th century author, theologian named A.T. Robertson wrote a book that I've been studying in preparation for this talk. It's called The Teachings of Jesus Concerning God the Father. And he builds on that thesis by talking about God revealing himself to us as the Father, the everlasting Father in the Old Testament. And this is what Isaiah is alluding to. Here's what A.T. Robertson says. He says, 
God reveals himself not all at once, but slowly, now one attribute, now another. The God of history and God in history. So this slow revealing that we all experience, it began with Adam and Eve when God came looking for them in the Garden of Eden after they had sinned and were hiding. And God says to them, where are you? Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? God asked. Did you eat from the tree I told you not to touch? And after they admitted it, God responds really gently, really amazing his gentleness, but also with truth and justice. And he says, what have you done? Did God not know the answers to these questions he's asking? Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to? What have you done? All these questions. Did God not know the answers to these questions? Of course he did. He's asking them rhetorically. He's revealing something about himself to them in the context of their own failure. God knows how to communicate. He knows what's going on. But he has to pursue us carefully. He has to get on our level. He has to speak in a language we understand. Now, we got this little rescue dog at our house. It's kind of a chihuahua pug mix, if you can picture that. Like two diametrically opposed dogs got together and created this little schizophrenic. Her name is BB. She's a rescue dog. She likes me, but she loves my wife, okay? I take her on walks every day. I scoop her poop, you know, and I do all those good manly things for her. But if I really, she looks, you know, up at me, this giant that lives in the house. If I really want to show her that I love her, I have to get down on the floor on my stomach and get my chin on the ground. And I'll do that sometimes. And when I do that, something changes in that dog. She comes running up to me when I, she's far away and I get down and, hey, BB. She comes running up to me, starts licking me all over my face and get this silly little funny grin with her crooked teeth. You know, it looks at me with this little grin, licks me all over the face. It's, it's disgusting. <laughs> she's all excited. So we play together. And she somehow relates to me when I get off my lofty legs and get down on the floor to her. So this is how God relates to us. How does an all-powerful God connect with creation without overwhelming us? This is a big question. What language does God speak when he's talking with himself in the community of the Trinity? What methods does he use to communicate with us? He has to diffuse this eternal character and eternal wisdom down into human language and experience that we can grasp. Sometimes he uses metaphors and analogies through his word. Sometimes he allows us to go through experiences that reveal his character and purposes. 
And God can't always just play with us like I did with my dog. You know, sometimes I got to take her for a walk. Sometimes the lessons we learn that we need to learn require a little bit more divine care and thought. Martin Luther once said, it is necessary in his kind of cryptic style, it's necessary that everything which is believed should be hidden. It cannot, however, be more deeply hidden than under an object or experience which is contrary to it. Basically, what Martin Luther is saying is we don't always perceive things quickly. We don't always get it. Sometimes stuff is happening to us and we don't understand what is going on. It takes time, and God allows us to go through some of these learning experiences. One time, in a little bit, of what I think is a little humor, humorous illustration of this in John's gospel, it's right after Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on the, you know, the back of a donkey. He rides in, the crowds, the throngs are there. They're singing praises as he comes in, and, and, and the crowd, so there's a lot of exuberance at this moment. And some Greeks are in that crowd, and they come to one of Jesus' disciples, to Philip, and they said, we want to meet Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us why. So Philip goes and finds Andrew, and the two of them go to Jesus to ask, ask him about this. And they say, some people want to meet you. Here's Jesus' answer. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce a plentiful harvest. I can just see Philip and Andrew walking away from that meeting, looking at each other and saying, was that like a yes or a no? We have the benefit of hindsight and we can perceive what was going on in that moment but Philip and Andrew it wasn't going in right then everything believed is hidden Luther says under an object or experience that is contrary to it our natural reaction is to question these things to resist them to get angry we don't like it when it things go don't go the way we planned yet God in his fatherly nature gently and sometimes even brutally does these things to help us grow and learn. The fatherhood of God is perhaps one of the most deeply hidden and least understood truths in Scripture, but references are in the Old Testament. They're they're not like in the New Testament where it's everywhere, but in the Old Testament there's many references actually to his fatherly nature. We all long for this. Let's, let's read a couple scriptures. In 1 Chronicles, God speaks to David concerning his son, Solomon, who's going to inherit the kingdom. And this is what God says. He shall build me a house, and I will, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Isaiah, the one who our text takes from today, in a later chapter, 64, in verses 8 and 9, he says this, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the, all the work of your hands. Psalm 103 says it this way, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
just the way God made of us, all of us long, all of humanity longs for the experience of this fatherly kind of intimacy. The safe and nurturing, protective and provided kind of intimacy. Every human being on earth wants this. We look to it in our earthly fathers and when we've been denied this thing, we often struggle looking for someone or something to fill the void. Psalm 67 powerfully illustrates this deep human longing when the Jew, one of the Jewish prayers, it says, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I have four, now I have 12 grandchildren. Every kid is looking up at mom and dad and looking up at grandpa and grandma. Look, look at me, you know, look what I did. This deep cry for recognition, for approval, for praise. We never outgrow this. We're built for this. We yearn for this kind of affirming attention, for someone to take notice of us, for someone to assure us that we're not alone, that we're not insignificant. Yet even good earthly fathers have, a, have the very difficult task of teaching hard lessons to their children. One of our grandsons used to climb trees. I just went surfing with him yesterday and He's a little bit older now. He used to love to climb trees, and his parents would let him do it. My daughter and her, and her husband would let him do it, but they were constantly watching out for him, you know, because don't climb too high and don't know, no, you know, standing at the bottom of the tree ready to catch him. He always wanted to climb higher than he was permitted. So one time a few years ago, they went out to eat with another couple, and they were at a restaurant that was sort of sitting, sort of indoor-outdoor kind of a situation, and Gavin went out to climb a tree that was nearby that was just like drawing him to it, you know. Branches were low, easy to get in it. He climbed up with his buddy, and he climbed too high, and he fell, and he landed really hard on one of those parking bumpers that's underneath the tree, knocked himself out. They rushed him to the hospital, where it was determined that he had not broken any bones, but he did have a pretty bad concussion. And while he was recovering a little while later in the hospital, his mother asked him how he was feeling, and he said, I wish they would cut down all the trees in the world. <laughs> Hard lesson. In Genesis, first chapters of Genesis, chapters 12 and 15 and onwards, there's this wonderful story, a beautiful story of Abraham's being called by God. Abraham has promised that he's going to have offspring that will be like the sand of the sea and the stars of the heavens in number, beyond the ability to number them. He would be called, his name was changed from Abram to Abraham because that meant the father of nations the meaning of Abraham. He, Abraham was married to Sarah. They had no children. She was barren when this promise came. He was 75 years old and she was about 10 years younger. So already past the time when barrenness was even a factor anymore. 25 years later, the promise was reiterated through this story of several chapters 
25 years later, Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, and finally the promise is fulfilled and Isaac was born. And then, a few years later, in what seems to be almost incomprehensible to us when we just read the story at face value, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son on an altar, to give up this promise and this future. Remember what Martin Luther said, it's necessary that every belief be hidden under an object or experience that is contrary to it. Why would God do this? Now, Abraham was familiar with child sacrifice. This was common in the pagan religions of his day. So this was not new, and Abraham knew what God meant. But he obeys. And this must have been for Abraham, who was developing this nurturing relationship with God that very few people knew. This must have been a brutal obedience for him. He and Isaac and a few servants, because Abraham was a man of means in his tribal experience, they embark on a three-day journey to the mountains where God had told them to go. They arrive at the appointed place, and he and Isaac leave the servants behind, and the two of them go on alone, carrying with them the wood and the fire. I want to read directly from the scripture here because it's such a beautifully poetic text. Isaiah speaks first. He says, my father. And Abraham said, here am I, my son. Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they they continue together to the appointed site. And when they arrive, Abraham binds his beloved son to the altar and raises his knife. And then God intervenes. This is in Genesis chapter 22, if you want to read it. God intervenes as the knife is in the air. And God says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham replies, he says, yes, here I am. It's tough for dads to read this. God says, don't lay a hand on the boy, don't hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then God provides the real sacrifice. Abraham looks up and sees a ram caught nearby by its horns in a thicket. The book of Hebrews tells about this story, and it said that Abraham knew that God would intervene and save his Isaac's life, even if he had to raise him from the dead. But that journey, that three-day journey, must have been grueling for Abraham. Why did God do this? Why did God do this to him? Was this some kind of cruel joke? Was God playing tricks on Abraham? What, What... What father would do this are the questions we ask. God is omniscient. He knows everything. We we know this in theory, but these are questions we always ask when things don't go the way we hoped, when we suffer. Why is this happening to me? 
Here in the earliest history of the world, God unveils something about his fatherly love for the world, and he foreshadows to Abraham what he will do in the future when he must do the same thing and he must offer his own son in sacrifice for the sins of the world. 1,800 years later, God, the everlasting Father, sends Jesus into the world, and this is what Jesus came to do. Oddly enough, Jesus comes in a way, just like Luther said, Jesus comes in a way that seems to contradict the messianic promises of the Old Testament. Mighty God? Jesus was born in a barn, in abject poverty, on the outskirts of Bethlehem, the presumed illegitimate son of adulterous parents. He grew up in an obscure little desert town called Nazareth, whose only claim to glory was the word that said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He wasn't born into royalty or privilege, prince of peace. He was a poor commoner who hung out with lowlifes and sinners. And even after he became famous, he refused to use his influence to become a political leader. Yet all this time through his ministry, Jesus talked continually about his heavenly father. The Lord's Prayer teaches to pray, the disciples said. He said, when you pray, say, our father who art in heaven. On the, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred numerous times to the Father. He says, I say to you, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. And when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. This is found in Matthew chapters 5 and 6. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither, neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? The Gospel of John is perhaps the most numerous occasions of God, Jesus referring to God as his Father. You can read it yourself if you're interested in chapters about 8 through 17. I'll just refer to a couple texts. He says in John 10, he says, I and the Father are one. In John 14, he says to one of the disciples who asks him a question about this because they're confused about what's going on. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Again in John 14, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. <laughs> wow. And even while he hung on the cross, he uses this language. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The big idea of Christmas, the big idea of this season that we're in, the big idea of the whole Bible, and of this theme of God, the everlasting Father, is that we lost our way, and God came looking for us. This is, this is the theme throughout Scripture, beginning with Adam and Eve when he sought them out in the garden. This is Abraham's experience when God came looking for him and spoke to him and guided him in building a great nation. 
who carried this promise to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is what the prophet Isaiah foresaw when we read this text this morning, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace. When Jesus came, God fully demonstrated his tenacious pursuit of us. In Jesus, God came so close we could touch him. We could see his kindness, his gentleness, his glory through this humanity, his his humanity. Jesus revealed what God is like. In Jesus, God spoke to us in a language we could understand. He is a good father. I'm going to leave you with three fatherly attributes of God. First, as we've already said, his tenacious pursuit of us. By this, we know we are loved. Paul said this in Romans. He said, God demonstrated his love for us. He demonstrated his love for us. It's not theoretical. It was demonstrated for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus spoke of this frequently. He told parables about a lost coin and the woman tore the house apart to find it. He told about a lost sheep. Out of a hundred, one was lost. The shepherd left the 99 and went looking for the lost sheep and would not relent until he found it. The prodigal son story, which is famous around the world, even for people who don't adhere to the scriptures, that we understand the prodigal son, the father who waited, never gave up that his son would come home. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. So his tenacious pursuit is is a major attribute of God's fatherly nature. Secondly, his gentle nearness. By this we know we are safe. My little dog knows she's safe when I am gentle with her. The prophet Isaiah saw this in in chapter 53. He spoke of this coming Messiah, and I'm only going to read parts of this entire chapter, which is a brilliant, inspiring chapter, prophetic of Jesus. He says this, he says, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. When Jesus came, God came so close we could touch him. And he was so much like us that we turned away and thought, there's nothing that impressive about him. My brother took his own life in October 1984. He was living in Los Angeles, California, we were missionaries in Thailand. We flew home when my dad called. 
I remember that phone call. I remember for two months or more, I couldn't hear the phone ring without quivering. We flew home to Pennsylvania, and my parents had Dale's body flown to Pennsylvania for burial. I remember how my dad was a pillar of strength through that entire time. He had just lost his third-born child to a terrible and unnecessary death. Dale had given his life to Christ. He was an ardent follower of Jesus, very involved in his church in California, but he struggled with depression. The day before the funeral, we went to the funeral home to see Dale in a private family viewing, and I remember following my dad into the room. He had been so stoic, so steady through those days, but when he walked into that room and saw that open coffin with his 27-year-old son lying there, tears just... Yet in all that pain and the years that followed that we grieved, my dad never lost his way. I know that the only reason my dad could bear up under such wrenching circumstances is because of God's gentle nearness in his life. My dad knew God as his everlasting father And even when life threw him a terrible curveball, he held on to God's love and nearness and wisdom. I'm so glad that I had a dad like that who followed the Lord and let him shape his life. All of us need people like this in our lives. And if you have been denied that in your family, God can provide that to you from his own grace and he can also provided to you through his people. This thick, through the thick and the thin of life, we, we hold on to this trust about God's closeness and nearness and gentleness and benevolence. This is what church is for. This is what Christian leadership is meant to be. We don't always get it right as Christian leaders, and that's a terrible tragedy. But this is what it's meant. This is what God is meant, who wants to be this for us, This is what every father should be to their kids. And if you're a father today, let me challenge you. Be that for your kids. Come close to God and let him be that to you and be that person for your kids. Finally, God's wise integrity. So we talked about his his tenacious pursuit of us. We talked about his gentle nearness to us. And finally, his wise integrity By this, God steadies us and inspires us. His word is all the truth and wisdom we need for a complete life, really in its foundations. I know we need education, we need to get good in what we're called to do, but this is our foundation. His truth sets us free. It's interesting, that text in the Gospel of John is in the context of Jesus talking about God, his Father and having an argument with the Jews who just don't like him talking that way. (laughs) Following Jesus as our everlasting father means we listen to his affirmations and we obey his warnings. We discern what it means to have yes in our lives, but we also obey him when he says no. 
Every good parent knows, knows this. We must, teach their, we must teach our kids to love life and take risks, but also not be stupid <laughs> and fall out of trees. Huh? God's wise integrity helps us navigate a successful path through life's pitfalls and potholes. So I want us to pray together as we close. You can stay seated. The worship team will come up and just pray, play softly for us. And I want to do a little, something a little different, a little interactive prayer to help you respond to the Lord this morning as your everlasting Father. <clears throat> and I want you to follow me. We're going to do some hand gestures and say some words. And you're, you're welcome to say these words out loud if you like, but you don't have to. I'm, not, I'm really not expecting that. However you like to pray, you can pray quietly in your heart or you can pray with your voice. It's, it's up to you entirely. I want us to cross our, cross our hands over our head like this and say these words, by myself I run and hide from you. But knowing that you pursue me, open my hands and my heart to welcome you. Now hands in front like this. By myself I resist and am suspicious. But because you gently come near I surrender and I seek your nearness in my life. And finally Hands, hands over your ears and your head shaking no. Say, by myself I am proud and closed off. But because your counsel is kind and wise and true, I raise my hands above my head and look towards heaven. And I open my life to everything you have for me. Lord, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for drawing near to us in this Christmas story that we remember, but that you do this to us every day. And thank you for showing us your eternal wisdom and kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.